0: Discover the Power Within Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Better get healthy and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran.
1: We all like to get compliments, hear nice things about ourselves, and know that at least some of the people in our world think we're doing a great job. I think to me, the biggest compliment is to be seen as authentic, to be seen as the real deal. And that's really how I see our guest today. When I introduce him formally, I'll tell you some of the things he's done in the world and recognition that he's received. But he's done a lot of very personal, very private things that to me just make him the epitome of a truly spiritual person living a terrific life right here on Earth. And we will be talking with him in just a moment. Hi, everybody. Not to leave you with a cliffhanger. I am Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan Program, and this guest that I have been uh, giving you teases and tidbits about is, I believe, the guest who has had the most request uh, to return uh, of anyone that I've had on the Main Street Vegan podcast in its nine years uh, of existence, and he is Rabbi Dr. Shmuley Yanklowitz. So to everybody who has written to me saying, bring him back, bring him back, we got him back, and I'm just as happy as you are. So for those who do not yet know the rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Shmuley Yanklowitz is the founder and CEO of Shamayim, a Jewish animal advocacy movement. Newsweek named him one of the top 50 rabbis in America, and The Forward named him one of the 50 most influential Jews. He is the author of 20 books on Jewish ethics and spirituality, and it is my great pleasure to introduce Rabbi Yanklowitz. How are you doing?
2: Thank you so much, Victoria. I'm doing great now that I'm here with you. So thank you for making the space to talk.
1: Well, it's wonderful to to talk with other people who are also trying to do something amazing in the world, which you do every single day. So I want to start with a little bit of background just on Judaism, because we have listeners of every faith and, and no faiths. My understanding is, and tell me if I've got this term wrong, that you are a modern Orthodox rabbi, and yet I think the average person hears that word Orthodox and thinks, I don't really know what that is, but I know it's not modern.
2: (laughs) Right. Modern and Orthodox appear to be oxymoronic, and uh, Orthodox means kind of past-rooted, and I guess modern could, in theory, mean contemporary or present um and that is precisely the tension that we are striving for the struggle between eternal truths and progressive opportunities being past rooted and future looking being guided by uh timeless wisdom and being open to new wisdom
1: and how do we do that it's it seems like it's easy to get stuck in one place or the other because then at least you've got the, the writings, the teachings to support you, or you've got the news and your friends to support you. But when you're trying to get a balance, it seems like it would get you kind of off balance sometimes.
2: Yeah, this is actually exactly what I think it means, or at least one part of what it means, to strive to be godly. I don't know who God is, but, to, I, but I, know, I, I, mean, I think I know a little bit about what it means to try to be godly. And in the Jewish tradition, one way to God is called that God is living and um, rooted, which is to say not changing, like committed, eternal, but also evolving. And I think that's a great challenge for us today as well. Like what part of myself is so crystal clear in my ethics and my identity and my spirituality? And what parts of myself... Am I looking to kind of grow or evolve or change in new directions? <clears throat> and I know people who like one or the other. They love the rootedness in all of their ideology or their identity. And I know others who love every new new news article and are able to shift every part of their life based upon new trends and fads. And I think both of those paths, you know, leave something wanting, um, you know, that I think as humans, we are, um, we are we have an innate need for both of those, and so how do we do that? I don't think it's easy, but I think having spiritual practices that help us to focus on both of those. There are things in our life like love that should always be there and always be cultivated. That's the rooted part of us, or a commitment to justice. And then there's the parts that change about how we experience our role in the world, how we experience relationships, and to constantly be in that dance between back and forth between the two.
1: Well, it's quite a dance. Maybe we're all Sufis in our own way. So <laughs> yes. just just to give us the very basics, I, I feel like we have so much luxury today that we have the whole show, and last time it, it was just half. So I feel like I, I want to ask you some Easy questions and some deep questions too. So, just to give everybody who's not Jewish and doesn't have an understanding of Judaism, can you give us the kind of, of uh, Cliff's Notes version of what do Jews believe?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry, Victoria. Part of your question faded out. What do Jews believe? You're saying in general, or was there a specific framework?
1: No, I just in a very um, elementary way for somebody who's never asked that question or heard an answer
2: before. Great, great, Uh, perfect. Thank you, thank you so much for that. I've never been asked that question. (laughs) It's so great. So the first Jew is Abraham, is Abraham, and he is selected, so to speak, because he is a person who is daka umishpat. He's a person who pursues justice. And that is the raison d'etre of, uh, in the biblical ethos of what it means to be a Jew, to be a person who is willing to struggle and push back in order to pursue what is right. And that is the same thing in terms of where the Jewish people get their name. Jacob, the son of Isaac, um, the son of Abraham, just following the paternal line, um, is... um, is his name changes to yisrael to israel because he wrestles with god and humans and because he's willing to struggle in the world he earns that name and so i think in summary what judaism is is ethical monotheism it's a commitment to monotheism of one god understood in the broadest sense Um, but also because of of god's presence in the world we have ethical obligations Uh, towards the sparks of holiness, the sparks of godliness that are found in everyone and in everything.
1: And so how do vegan values, I I know you're a a vegan, how do they fit in with Jewish values?
2: That's a great question. You know, so Judaism, I would say, um, has both laws and values. Um, Jewish law, known as halakha, is also playing that dance between rootedness and evolution. Um, and the values are much more in a rooted sense. The values are always there. The laws evolve as those, as those values get applied to new contexts. And so it would be absurd to, for me to suggest that veganism is a timeless value applied through all the laws and all the eras. I don't think any tradition can claim that. Um, and yet, what we see over and over is a sensitivity towards suffering a mandate to be not only do compassionate acts but be a compassionate person and a concern for all living uh creatures and um this is so rooted in terms of who which prophets are chosen to be prophets because they were shepherds and how they engage with those animals it's rooted in laws of kashrut, of, of the kosher laws. It is rooted in, uh, in various uh, uh, holidays and in types of liturgy um, in terms of what, what attributes, divine attributes, we highlight. And, and thankfully, Judaism is not only past-looking, but also future-looking, for some even messianic-looking, um, in the sense that there is progress towards an, a, a utopia, Um, And as such, I think we embrace the widespread Jewish veganism we're seeing today, the growing Jewish veganism in Israel and in the diaspora, as a sign that this is actually an ideal which emerged at the start in the Garden of Eden, that we are moving back towards in a more utopian model.
1: Oh, that's thrilling. Every time I... I'm on the bus going past the United Nations of first Avenue, which obviously I haven't done in over a year, but when I used to do that, they have part of Isaiah's prophecy uh, about peace and, uh, you know, all the animals and everybody getting along together on a, a wonderful sign there by the UN. And it always gives me some hope. Is that what you're talking about?
2: Yes, that is a big part of it. Exactly. This, this sense, yes, and I, and I love seeing that, you know, when we used to do protests out there at the UN in New York, seeing this Isaiah peace wall and seeing that actually veganism is not just don't eat animals, don't eat animal products for me. It's also about a, a dream, a yearning for a non violent world mm-hmm. where we, under, we, we can see the depths of how violence destroys the soul, not only the body, of course. And that Isaiah prophecy of how swords, um, you know, will ultimately um, be destroyed or really be transformed into generative tools rather than destructive tools is really at at the center of what this is about.
1: I love that. And and we can turn slaughterhouses and meat processing plants (laughs) into plant processing plants.
2: Oh, there it is. I love that. That's great.
1: One, one of my favorite stories that a guest has told me on this program uh, was Leah Garces from Mercy for Animals had been working in a very compassionate way with a man who, who did chicken farming for one of the big companies. And he had two big chicken raising sheds. I don't know if it was for eggs or for meat, but either way, he didn't like it. And he wasn't paid that much money, but it let him stay on his family land and raise his children there. And she didn't push him at all. She just listened to him. And over a period of a few years, he figured out that he could use those same chicken sheds to produce medical marijuana. (laughs) And his income, I mean, it didn't just double. It didn't just triple he's made so much more money from raising hemp for medical marijuana than he ever did from raising chickens. So I just thought it was a great story.
2: I love that. I love
1: that. <laughs> so you had, you mentioned Genesis 129, and I did want to ask you about this in um, the documentary, a prayer for compassion, which you were also in Jeffrey Cohan from Jewish veg asks the question that Nobody really answered, and I would love it if you could answer it, so I won't be quoting Jeffrey 100% verbatim, but he said more or less, knowing what God said in Genesis 129, that humans were to eat a plant-exclusive diet, why aren't all rabbis, priests, and ministers encouraging their followers to be vegetarian or vegan? Where is that disconnect?
2: Right, right. Well, you know, we live in, uh, in, a, in a fascinating era where um, people are craving um, fulfillment. There's such a sense of discontent that emerges from engagement with social media, that engages, that emerges from marketing, as marketing tries to point out everything we don't have and need and how we should be fundamentally discontent. Um, and, um, and from our economic and political systems that can be so alienating and marginalizing and can really promote a spirit of greed in the American ethos of what's in it for me. How do I get more? How do I get happier? And as such, we are so, uh, we are so influenced by what has become our central identity piece for most Americans, which is consumerisms. We are consumers, and we're constantly looking at consumerism as how to get more, how to get better, how to feel better, how to be happier. And so I think it is such a a modern plague that um, we overconsume, we misconsume, we abuse. And it is very hard for consumers, we know from behavioral economics, to shift their consumer habits without any major interventions. And so I think many people talk about the ethics of consumerism, and yet the barriers to any reversing or changing course for everyone is so hard. And so I think the basic conversation with rabbis or with any clergy or any person who seeks to actively promote compassion as a value is so clear that there's a problem. And yet the so the disconnect I think is not between that, that text and religious leaders. It's really the disconnect is between um, how we bridge the gap between uh, values that we cherish and how we live our lives. Plato was wrong when Plato thought those who know the good will do the good. In fact, um, it's not as correlated as he thought that if we just knew how rampant animal abuse was if we just knew what religion said then people would do what is right there's still this gap after knowing of how to change ourselves and so that so, so that's my first reflection on the american problem in terms of the jewish community i think we have additional challenges such as traditional jewish cu- cuisine jews feel like there's so many threats to Jewish survival and assimilation that they, that Jews cling to things such as traditions of food, of eating things that um, are comfort food from grandparents, like matzo ball soup with eggs or challah with eggs or brisket or all these, you know, things we often, or, or the old kosher deli model. And so I think that is one dimension of it. I think the other is that the the kosher establishment has really kind of, Submerged into the American capitalist ethos, which places the amounts of profits as the number one goal rather than values or the public good as the number one goal, and so I think that 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 that's an additional challenge we're facing
1: it is i I love what you talked about that just knowing the good doesn't mean that that you'll do it. We had uh, Bruce Friedrich speak at a a wonderful new organization. I'm part of the Compassion Consortium, which I'll tell you about during the break, and you can uh, (laughs) tell me if you would ever love to come and speak for us one day. I hope you will. But he was talking about the surveys that were done, and and the number of people, I think it was 43% of Americans believe that slaughterhouses should be shut down, (laughs) and yet— the vegans and the vegetarians still hover around two to 3%. So what, what we know and what we're willing to do uh, tend to be different. There's, there's a, there's a space. And why do some people find that one easy to fill? I know we all have spaces. We all have holes in, in our ethics and in our understanding and in how we relate to others And yet some of us, for some reason, got this piece, the piece about animals, the piece about food. Do you have any sense of why that gets into the hearts and minds of some people and not others?
2: That's another great question. Um, You know, so I think that um, that there's there's a few pieces there. One is that we really are collective beings. We think of ourselves as independent and making up our own mind and determining our own fate. But we know from situational ethics and from social psychology that humans are so deeply influenced by their environments, by their workplace, their families, their friend circles, their communities. And, um, And so it's really a part of changing the collective that individuals to sustain their commitments need partners, they need communities. And so one person in a family might decide, hey, I'm going to be vegan, but without family support, it becomes very difficult um, to not have that reinforcement and that community being on the same page. And, um, And so we see that again and again. This is also the phenomenon with diets that that people who have fundamentally different diets in the home, it's much more difficult to maintain such such diets. And, or, in, or interreligious marriages. Um, it's, it, 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 when the family's not on the same page with a religion, it becomes even more challenging to kind of sustain a religious lifestyle in a sense. So it's true on, on all kinds of things. And then we saw over the last four years with political marginalization, what happens when there's different political ideologies in the same home and, and the breakdown of trust that, 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 that occurs but I think that going, going one, one level deeper there is um, I think that we can have a tendency to normalize um, or to justify what has been normalized, which is to say that, um, yes, it's a real problem, but if everyone's doing it, it's not such a big problem. You know, even when people knew smoking was, was, was harmful to the health, if if it was such a widespread phenomenon, um, I don't really need to stop. And that's true with so many social vices um, that we are able to um, justify what has been normalized, even while we know on an ethical level, it's unjustifiable.
1: Do you you have any thought on um, human to human getting along?
2: Say it again, of who getting along?
1: of people getting along with one another. I mean, oh, yeah. it, it's completely yeah. um, cliche yeah. to say that there's a lot right. of divisiveness in this country. But the fact that right. there's this much divisiveness during a crisis, usually a crisis right. brings people together. Yeah, I, I'm right. completely stumped by it.
2: Right. Yeah, completely, completely. Yeah. You know, it is uh, I wish I had the answer to this one. I, I am uh, as stuck on this on this one as I am um, uh, as uh, as as I am with with, uh, with other moral problems because on the one hand I do believe believe in deeply in pluralism and in bridge building and in dialogue on the other hand I do believe in setting red lines as to moral behavior uh, where dialogue is not the answer. Um, and that there are some things we can consider to be so egregious that, that such views don't, don't deserve tolerance. And so I think we're in a very, uh, big predicament. Um, it, like you said, it normally takes a crisis like a war or a pandemic to build a sense of collective unity, um, and tolerance. But, uh, we have not seen that here and that just shows how deeply entrenched, uh, you know, our ideologies are today.
1: Um, prayer, is that part of your life? A big part. So I guess we can always do that.
2: Yeah, I, exactly. Prayer.
1: I've been a little saddened, <laughs> you know, when, when people will say, is, I'm sending thoughts yeah. and prayers. And, and it it just has this terrible reputation these days of, yeah, right. But, you know, sometimes... That's what we're left with until the prayers give us some inspiration as to how to act.
2: I think that's right. And I think the, the most fundamental goal of prayer is to cultivate humility, to cultivate the sense that we don't exactly know that we are important, but also small, and to take ourselves less seriously and to take others more seriously. So I, I, I think you're exactly right.
1: Uh, well, that's a tweet for you. You, you mentioned social media a few uh, conversations back. Do you do your own social media?
2: Do I engage on social media? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Quite a bit. Um, I, uh, I I have private Facebook pages. I have public Facebook page. I use Instagram. I, I guess to some degree I use Twitter, but not really. Um, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I started using Clubhouse, and so I see the good and the bad and the ugly. (laughs) So
1: how does one navigate that? I think my big question is, I don't really mind it. I just really don't know exactly what I'm doing here. People seem to like the best if I post a picture of my rescue pigeon, and it's like, okay, but how many pigeon pictures do you really want to see?
2: Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean the power of social media to connect us and generate new ideas and brainstorming and build community and share new content is enormous. It's just it's the most powerful thing that of uh, the democratization of 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 voices so that more people have a platform to, to share and and to connect. And yet we're holding more relationships than we have ever before, and those relationships are weaker than ever before. And so it naturally can lead someone to feel lonely um, or to feel like the question no longer is how do I do the most good, but how do I cultivate a public perception that I'm doing the most good? Um, And we can almost lose, one can lose one's integrity in, what like you said in the beginning of this call today, so powerfully about the search for authenticity, the search to, to to really find our own calling and pursue our own unique work in the world. We can lose focus on that based upon, hey, my authentic calling only gets ten likes, but my inauthentic <laughs> calling gets a hundred likes. Maybe I should do more of that.
1: I love you know? it. We need to go to break. But, uh, oh, that's perfect. And we'll continue right where we left off. More with Rabbi Dr. Shmuley Yanklowitz here on the Main Street Vegan Program.
0: Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield, May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran.
1: I am so excited to get back to this conversation that after nine years of knowing when I'm supposed to talk, I started talking before the music. So that will tell you what a conversation with Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz will do for you. And we will have all of his URLs, or not all, because he just told us he's on every kind of social media platform there is, but we'll have some of them on our show notes at MainStreetVegan.net and you can also check out MainStreetVegan.net if you are interested in the possibility of training to be a vegan lifestyle coach and educator through Main Street Vegan Academy, or if you'd like to check out our weekly blog, which this week is um, an excerpt from a wonderful new vegan cookbook, Veganification. So I hope that you get a kick out of that. I also want to do a shout out to our sponsor, the good people at lovecompliment.com. Their basic product complement core gives you the nutrients that you absolutely want to get from somewhere if you are a plant-based person, so the B12D3 the omega-3 fully formed fatty acids and vitamin K2 are all in there. Easy liquid, nothing to swallow. And there are other supplements that they have which contain additional nutrients. They have a new protein powder. So check them out at lovecompliment.com. And if you put in the discount code Main Street, all caps, then uh, you'll get yourself a discount. And the final announcement before returning to our wonderful conversation today is that the Compassion Consortium has launched in earnest. If you weren't there on Sunday, and oh my gosh, a lot of people were there. We had such a wonderful turnout thanks to everybody who was there. But you can watch that on YouTube. Uh, We've got a tiny URL for that, tinyurl.com slash service one CC for compassion consortium service numeral one. And we hope to keep that with service two and three and so forth so that if you can't listen on the fourth sunday of of every month you can catch that later on youtube and i just spoke with rabbi dr yanklowitz during the break and he says that uh, he'll speak for us one of these sundays so you want to keep an eye out for that so rabbi we were just talking about social media when we stopped for the break do you have anything more to say about that
2: Um, No, I mean, there's so much more to say about that, but, um, uh, but yeah, just to pick up on that final point, which is that I believe that at the center of spiritual integrity is to choose to do what is right over what is popular. And if we choose to use social media, yes, we can follow best practices to maximize engagement with our work, like building a vegan movement but we should always maintain that compass. Am I doing what's right or am I doing what's popular?
1: I love that. You have so many books, fabulous, amazing books. I don't think you've ever done one that's just little fabulous sound bites. And I don't know if you would consider that too lightweight, but you're just so good at them. So (laughs) just a suggestion. So I do want to, speaking of your books, um, in your book, Postmodern Jewish Ethics, you have a chapter called, Can Houses of Worship Commit to Going Plant-Based? Can they? And why is this important?
2: Great question. So we have a, at Shemayim, we have a program called the Synagogue Vegan Challenge, where we fund synagogues in partnership with VegFund to uh, to start transitioning towards vegan, of giving vegan offerings and vegan education, and we will underwrite the cost of, the, of those food programs. And we have found that there's enormous receptivity to that, that these institutions, especially the ones that have been around a long time, don't know how to make such a pivot, and they really need an intervention. And I think this is so important because community has broken down in America, as as was famously uh, written in 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 the book by the Harvard psychologist, Professor Putnam, Robert Putnam, a book Bowling Alone, that people used to be in bowling clubs. And now he looks at the phenomenon of how bowling teams and now they bowl alone. To, to demonstrate the problem, the breakdown of community, the breakdown of the collective, or even even friendship. Some decades ago, the, uh, the average man, of course women are, have, have historically been much better at maintaining friendships than men, but the average man in America had about three friends they could turn to in a time of crisis, and that number dropped down to less than one uh, on average. The breakdown of friendships, the breakdown of community, and so religion offers one of the last types of kind of sustainable community in America. Um, uh, and I think we can't dismiss how much power there is there to shape the American culture um, and, the, and, and to shape individual behavior. And so I think it's not only important because, because it, it, it matters that we see change everywhere, but because of the ripple effect that religion can have on American culture itself. And so do I think it can happen I do think it can, and I think it's mostly going to happen from the bottom up. For pastors or imams or rabbis or priests or ministers to, to do this from the top down, it would lead to a revolt, you know, of sorts. It really needs to be, empower voices within the community and, uh, and, and, um, and build it on, on, through a grassroots effort. We've seen that to be effective.
1: Mm. So, some people have revolted they they just don't have any interest in organized religion, but many of these do still value a spiritual life and they identify as um spiritual but not religious, something of that nature and When you were talking about that when you were kind enough to teach a class for us in the main street vegan academy master course last fall you said it's fine to be spiritual and not religious, as long as your spirituality has the rigor that religion would require. Could you riff on that some?
2: Yeah, you know, um, it would be like, to me, someone saying, I'm vegan when I feel like it. You know, like, when I feel like eating a meat burger, I do it when I feel like eating vegan, I do it. I said, well, You know, I'm glad you're vegan sometimes, but, you know, wouldn't a commitment be more robust? And so, too, like, I I, I don't mean to discredit anyone who identifies as spiritual but not religious. I know it's a very popular trend today. But really, I view it as a very similar phenomenon. Uh, I understand religion to be a sustained, disciplined spirituality, a sustained, disciplined commitment to community and to to ethics. It it does not have to mean all the negative things that we're looking at, dogma and of of uh you know lack of critical thinking um you know that but rather religion at its core i think is about embracing ritual embracing prayer embracing community embracing study embracing practices that make sure we maintain our spiritual commitment and so for me like veganism is is a discipline like it is a discipline to commit oneself to such a lifestyle and so, too, religion is is a discipline. I know that sounds rigid, but I don't mean it in a rigid way. I think that through the rootedness, we become free. We find our freedom by committing. You know, it's, like I, it's, it's just like how we commit to a life partner. You know, anyone who's committed to a life partner, we don't say, oh, I'm committed to you on Wednesdays and on Thursdays, you know, I'm not committed to you. Like, what kind of relationship is that? A parent and a child or a romantic partnership or a parent, you know, or a sibling, you know, I think rather that real love requires work. You don't say that at a wedding. It doesn't sound super romantic all the time, right? But so too, like spirituality requires work and it requires community and discipline. And so I think that um, that maybe there's need for alternative types of religious communities, you know, and expansive notions of what it means to be religious. But the spiritual but not religious, I think is, is often used as a cop-out. It's really used as an excuse to, you know, I don't do much ever, but, in some sense, I feel connected to something that doesn't require anything of me.
1: Yeah, I've been studying a lot of yoga philosophy that seems to be my um, pandemic exploration. I mean, I've been around yoga for a really long time, but but not to the the point that I am now, and it's saying just the same thing that that the discipline gets you to the point where you could hope to be spiritual. <laughs> that yeah. it's um, exactly. very much a part of the thing exactly. fascinating
2: because That's... you know i i i really do think that nine well, i'm giving a random number here but nine out of ten times ritual doesn't work it doesn't work it only works that one out of ten times because you sustain the commitment you know nine out of ten times you're distracted you don't really feel it yet comforting but not transformational and one out of 10 you're like wow oh my goodness was that healing or refreshing or life-changing and so I think that if you just want spiritual, then we're gonna, we're gonna leave from the practices that have the most transformative potential.
1: Yes, love it. So somebody just sent in a, a text question and she is asking where Kashrut, the kosher dietary practices fit when someone is a Jewish vegan. Yep,
2: yeah. great question. So um, yes, as, as a traditional Jew, um, I'm very committed to kashrut, and, um, and I think there's a number of ways this connects. First, I do view it as a natural evolution of what kashrut is meant to be, um, and uh, I consider veganism in its fullest sense to be a kosher practice. So that's the most important thing I want to say about that. But in addition, I think the, the kosher piece enhances um, in how far we want to go. For example, and I know this might be too much for some, for some if you go to a typical vegan restaurant, as I have inspected the, you know, ingredients in them, they don't check minuscule ingredients. They, they, they don't always buy products that are completely vegan just one that kind of appear to be there's no eggs in it there's no milk in it obviously there's no meat but if you get into some of the smaller ingredients and you look at what it actually is a lot of those products um, emerge from commercial uh, from animals you know like bug dye or, or fats or things like that um, and and it's, it's very common and so so the kosher part actually because the kosher certification would never go for that it enables me to to go deeper into um, into some of the minutia, um, and so th- uh, th- those are my first two replies. And the third one I think is that kashrut is ultimately um, a mechanism of elevated spiritual consciousness when eating, and it's easy to be a vegan but not be spiritual. You know, just feel kind of self righteous in it, but then um, it not make us more compassionate beyond that. And I think that what, the, what kosher does, and I'm sure other religions have other vehicles for this, is, it, is it, it, it builds into every eating experience a blessing and a consciousness that what I'm doing is giving me energy in order to do more good in the world. The meal is not the end of my virtue. It's the beginning. It's the beginning. And that's what I think a kosher consciousness is about.
1: Oh, you, you have to do that book. The meal is not... The end of my what was the word you used?
2: The meal is not the end of my of my virtue, but the beginning of of that commitment.
1: I mean, come on, <laughs> that's that's exquisite. That's extraordinary. Thank you, thank you, and and I'm thank sure you. that the questioner uh, got a lot out of that. So, tell us about you. I, I know that you you live this this beautifully committed and active and delightful life. So tell us how you started out and how you got here and what your life looks like day to day.
2: Yep. Yep. Thank you. So, um, I grew up in an interfaith home, uh, a compassionate Jewish parents and a compassionate Christian parents. And we moved a lot. Um, for my parents' work from between countries and cities, and um, I ultimately uh, found myself yearning for service and spent a lot of time in villages in the Global South, uh, working with communities. And then in yeshiva in Israel, uh, in study centers, um, where uh, exploring ancient texts and spiritual practices. And realized I wanted to be a rabbi because I was attracted to, um, really attracted to what emerges from a sustained focus on mortality um, that so many people run away from. But the sense that we are all going to die and life is extremely short. And what does that mean for us as a sustained daily focus? Uh, to constantly live each day mission focused and value focused and to realize each breath is a gift, and each breath is also a responsibility and so I do a lot of my work today in Jewish context, a lot in interfaith context, um, a lot in traditional religious communities, a lot in progressive spaces kind of kind of go between a lot of different communities and um, and just feel very fortunate to have a very wide range of relationships that I'm privileged to have and feel that, um, being a rabbi is not only serving my community and serving the Jewish people, but really being an advocate for humanity and and for animals.
1: And you also are a foster parent. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. So we have, uh, my wife and I have fostered, um, many children in addition to our biological kids who are amazing Um, and uh, it has been uh, very rewarding and challenging every time a child arrives in our home uh, to meet their needs and meet our children's needs and um but you know one of the one of the many issues that keeps me up at night is that of of abuse children who have been abused or neglected and are in desperate need of home, uh, desperate, desperate need of a home. And we have about seven hundred thousand vulnerable children who pass through the foster care system each year in America. Seven hundred thousand. I mean, it's enormous. And so, uh, that's one of the cases where it's not effective on scale because, you know, we only bring, you know, usually just one child at a time into our home. Uh, our last, our, our last case was two, was two brothers, but usually just one. And yet it, it, it requires an enormous amount of energy just to support one. But as it says in the Talmud, to save one life is to save a world. And so we view one as worthy. And so we built a nonprofit called Yatom, where we are supporting families in their foster journey.
1: Wow. And you donated a kidney to a stranger. What prompted that act of love?
2: Well, that was really such a gift to me to have had the opportunity to do that. And I gained so much from doing that. Um, you know, a new perspective on body and on life and mortality, and, and just realizing that um, my belief that, that the divine placed two kidneys into our body, one for us and one for someone else. And um, I think we can solve the crisis of, of kidney failure through altruistic donation. At the very least, everyone being an organ donor after their life. And for those who have the health or the ability, uh, to do it while living, um, that's also wonderful. And so I've become a resource for folks who are considering that. I'm happy to. I actually have a book coming out on that this coming year on what that journey can look like medically, philosophically, spiritually. And, uh, you know, once again, this kind of comes back to the similar theme of uh, what do we do with our limited time to perpetuate life and the sanctity of life while we're alive.
1: Oh, that's that's really beautiful. We had a, a student in the last Main Street Vegan Academy who has also donated a kidney to someone that she she didn't know. I believe she has some sort of group, maybe a Facebook group of of vegan kidney donors. So it, it's uh, the the word is getting out that uh, we we can do lovely small things and we can do lovely huge things. And it's wonderful. I feel very blessed to know people who who are doing um, the huge stuff. So as you look around at the world today, if if you could just sit down with every young person, well, we'll just say in America, that'll be enough and, and give them some guidance on how to go forward with what we're facing. What would you tell them?
2: Amazing. Amazing question. Just one comment on the last bit before we move to that, which is that on this issue of saving life, I I continue to believe that um, the most urgent crisis really is the animal abuse issue because it's on both both, uh, quantitatively and qualitatively the most amount of suffering that when you look at the, ten, the tens of billions of land animals that killed for food each year, not to mention the fish, um, that um, and the way their lives look before they're killed, that quantitatively and qualitatively, this is the greatest amount of suffering. And so if we care about reducing suffering in the world, it is impossible to avoid this issue and its centrality. So I just wanted to, to, to connect that to the, to the issues of... Uh, that we were just talking about in terms of saving life. Um, In terms of of young people in America, you know, I really do think that uh, um, we are in a very scary, lonely time for young people in America. Suicide rates are higher than ever. Um, The breakdown of in-person engagement, even in-person dating, you know, everything done through apps and and again, social media and um, and real a sense of isolation and of loneliness and of inadequacy that is so rampant. Um, of course, there's so much positive there among young people in America as well. But just looking at the scary trends, I think that um, I really do think that spiritual integrity is the path forward. Whatever one is going to do with their life, whatever religion or whatever engagement they're going to have, in the workforce, um, or type of of, of, of home they're going to build. I think the sense of how will I engage in spiritual practices on a daily basis that remind me of who I am already and help me discover who I can be. And to put forth practices in one's life where one can constantly be asking themselves the big questions of checking in with themselves, am I living to to the to, to my highest values of, of, of and my, high, my greatest potential of who I can be in a way that is not just heavy, but also liberating and joyful, a joyful spirituality that asks big questions and where there's experience, growth and actualization. And I think that, that we see a breakdown in this, that, that the workplace demands so much and maintaining families requires so much and economically to stay afloat. And then not to mention, you know, staying abreast of kind of political engagement or social media engagement it requires so much to, to add on to their, you know, spirituality, which sounds like just a little cherry on top. It sounds like it's not essential to the system. It's just, oh, good, I've done everything I can do. Now, what can I do spiritual in my, in my three last you know, minutes of my weekend or something? But rather, it has to be central into how we live our lives. And I think that that can really liberate us from being bandwagon people who are in a rat race, just kind of tossed and turned by the fads and trends.
1: I love it. But that's because everything that you say um, speaks to me. You're, you're definitely Thank someone you. <laughs> that I admire. And I also think you're funny. You have a, a chapter in postmodern Jewish, Jewish ethics where you're kind of saying, yeah, maybe, maybe rabbis shouldn't be really funny. Talk to us about humor.
2: Oh, sorry, i sorry, I missed the question. Talk about
1: well, you have a chapter toward the end of uh, postmodern Jewish ethics. It says, "Should rabbis be funny?"
2: Oh, yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, it's it's very difficult because the, the, a lot of the humor that we're exposed to um, on TV or Netflix or podcasts, or whatever, really is other deprecating. And I think that's most certainly not the kind of humor that rabbis should engage, perhaps something that's self-deprecating or something also not a type that makes light of serious matters in a way that diminishes commitment. But I do think I do think taking that the humility of taking ourselves less seriously, um, even while we take our commitments very seriously, can enable one to be a little bit more playful with how they think about. with how they, you know, how we think about uh, engaging others and how we look at situations. Uh, The ability to kind of spiritually step back from conflict or from problems and laugh at them um, is very healing for relationships and for individuals. And so I think humor is essential. I think humor is essential when it's a healthy, productive kind.
1: Yeah, I do too. So in our last minute and a half, Tell us what you like to eat. What's your favorite vegan meal?
2: Wow. So when I'm out, there's a um, a, a local kosher Vietnamese place that I eat so much at, uh, and I really like their their pho soup in particular. Um, and so I would I would go for that Vietnamese or, or a type of you know a type of sushi of some kind. And at home, my wife makes amazing food. She's Shauna. She makes he bakes challah for Shabbat. He um, makes coconut kima, um, um, kind of a tofu dish. Um, a lot of uh, kind of Thai noodles with, with tofu and stir fries. Uh, mo- uh, whenever we can get a morning smoothie in with fruits and veggies, of course, we love that. So the list goes on and on. I'm not a foodie in that I can, um, I can cook well or name this stuff well. But um, but I do have a deep gratitude for amazing, amazing vegan food that I get from other sources.
1: Well, I'd like to come to your house for dinner, maybe one of these days. You, are you know, welcome. there used to be.
2: You are welcome. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: There was a Vietnamese restaurant near me when I lived in Kansas City. And we would always go there, especially if we were feeling a little bit under the weather. And everybody in the neighborhood was like, well, you you know, they put love in their food. So there's a lot to it. Thank you so much, Rabbi Yanklowitz. Thanks to Unity Online Radio and to everyone listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies.
0: Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.